thanks for having us again this morning. Uh, I note that you uh, missed the most important interview questions. Um, so let me clarify. Uh, yes, my hair really is this thin these days and my beard really is this gray. That's not a Zoom effect. And uh, yes, I'm not showing you my bottom half. Uh, so it's early in the morning here. There are some pajamas down there. Uh, but I pray you'll forgive that. And um, let's get on with uh, looking at this uh, part of the Bible that presents Jesus as a teacher. Well, a, a colleague of mine here in student ministry in Japan was feeling pretty pumped. She just attended the first big gathering in-person event for, uh, for two whole years. Pretty much everything had been online except for small gatherings, and she was so happy to be sharing that first time back in the game picture. And so she has her phone, and she's ready to show the people at church who've been praying for her in her ministry praying for the students and she gets out her phone and she shows them these amazing pictures of the gathering and everyone is so happy to be there but their reaction was unexpected oh that's that's dangerous that's that's scary that many people together really she wanted them to share the joy of gathering a crowd but instead they understood it as a fearful thing as I was saying before Japan has taken corona pretty seriously i've been six days at a conference and wearing a mask that entire time and mask wearing's been everywhere for 26 months in a row now uh, and along with that people are avoiding large gatherings uh, of any kind some people uh, avoiding those gatherings if they can at all so drawing a crowd what i would think maybe what you would think is usually a good thing is now not always a good thing i wonder what, how it is for you where you are one of our ongoing frustrations, though, here in Japan is that even before the pandemic, there was something a bit iffy about crowds. So if we're running an unusual event at church, we'll likely get the question, what if too many people come? As missionaries, we're like, bring it on. But if we're being a bit more culturally sensitive, we might submit to having a registration desk or a cutoff date for registration or limiting the attendees to church members or something like that. Crowds aren't always a good thing, apparently. Now, so far you've been going through Mark's gospel and I'm, I'm sure you have observed that Jesus is great at gathering a crowd. He teaches with authority. So those who are seeking a faithful leader are drawn to him. He heals the sick. And so uh, those who are healed are drawn to him. Those who need healing and restoring to society are drawn to him. Uh, even more fearful than having an incurable illness was to be afflicted by a demon. But Jesus wasn't afraid of demons, quite the opposite. Demons were in fear of him. He could tell them to get out and they'd obey. And so people who no one else could approach would approach Jesus in great numbers to be freed. But Jesus didn't just do spectacular things. He did normal stuff too but it made for a crowd. He did things like eat with sinners. He showed that he had power to forgive those sinners, to restore them to God. And so, so far, I'm sure you would have seen in Mark, the eager to learn, the sick, the demon afflicted, the sinners, everyone with any kind of need had a reason to track down Jesus and to be with him. And so Jesus was always drawing a crowd. And that's a good thing, right? The more the merrier, right? 
Well, how did Jesus understand that crowd? Was he pumped like my colleague? Was he afraid like the older folks who'd got used to the safety of small groups? Was he inconvenienced like the organisers of our event who worry that too many will turn up to feed? Was he thinking like the uh, impatient missionary? Oh, it's about time. As I looked at this passage, Jesus, the teacher, as uh, the passage presents him, I'm talking today from Mark 3, verse 7, uh, all the way down to the three parables that come after the parable of the sower, 4, uh, 34. But as a result of everything that's happened prior to today's passage, a huge crowd is now headed towards Jesus. They're coming to him from quite far away. He's up north in Galilee, and people are traveling from respectable areas like Jerusalem, but they're coming from further away, less respectable areas across the Jordan from there, and uh, even more iffy from further south from Idumea, and they're coming uh, foreign-heavy areas from north of Galilee over near the coast. They're coming out to see Jesus. And it's not just where they're coming from, but you've got to remember that travel's not an easy thing, no Shinkansen, no Jetstar. And uh, so if people are coming these distances, perhaps on foot, then these are people seriously seeking Jesus, perhaps doing so at great cost and inconvenience. What does it all mean? What's being fulfilled here? What are we meant to think about it? Well, it doesn't come as any surprise to Japanese people that one of the first things Jesus does is put some restrictions in place. Well, not a registration desk, not an application process or a deadline, but a small boat allowing him some distance from the people who are pushing forward to touch him. In, and instead of the free advertising offered to him by uh, demons as they uh, say goodbye, they could tell everybody that this guy is the holy uh, son of God, well, Jesus instead commands them to be quiet. So we get the impression that even to Jesus, the crowd isn't an unlimited good in of itself. Jesus doesn't fully give himself to it. No crowd surfing, no victory laps, no free car keys hiding under their picnic rug. Instead, at that very time, he calls a smaller number to himself, 12, and he gives them a clear job. The 12 disciples are going to be with him, they're going to preach for him, and they're going to free people from demons like Jesus has been doing. And so if the 12 disciples are going to go about this ministry, well, then that means Jesus' ministry will expand, right? So Jesus wants more of a crowd, right? But it's a particular kind of crowd, I think, that Jesus wants, a particular kind of crowd. Keep that in mind. Well, I asked uh, a car salesman at our church, uh, why don't you have any presence online? Why don't you advertise online? I was looking to buy uh, replace our car and I'd been told he was the guy to go to. Um, he could interface with the auctions and get us a good price and know who the reliable sellers were. And I thought, well, I'm not just going to believe uh, the people who are telling me this um, I, I want to check him out. So I looked for Google reviews. I looked for a blog. I looked for an online presence, but there was nothing. He had nothing there at all. And I asked him because I knew his business wasn't going. So, well, why, why aren't you online? And he said, if you have a presence online, troublesome customers will come. If you have a presence online, troublesome customers will come. So they're really not chasing a crown, these people around me, are they? 
Well, in today's passage, before the parable of the sower is, is presented, the troublesome customers have found Jesus along with the crowd. And these troublemakers are introduced together and they're critiqued in a way together. So we're invited into the insult of putting them into one category. And why is it an insult to put them together in one category as troublemakers? Because one set of troublesome customers are his own beloved family. His family hear that he becomes so popular that the, the delivery guy can't make his delivery and they think it must be time to get him home and set him straight. But before they arrive, the second troublesome party are introduced, the teachers of the law. Some of your Bibles would call them scribes. These are highly respectable people. And that second party, that respected party, Jesus makes them look dumb. You see, they've been making a wild claim about Jesus. As they, as they get jealous of Jesus, his power and his influence and his crowd-drawing ability, perhaps, uh, they claim, well, yeah, we're not going to deny that he casts out demons, guys. But do you know how he does it? He does it because he's a friend of the top demon. And so the crowd might think, yeah, I guess that checks out. Seems to make sense on the surface. But in front of the crowd, Jesus schools the teachers. What you're describing is nonsense. It's a house divided against itself. It's an own goal for Satan. It's a plan guaranteed only to bring down the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus offers an alternative. What does he suggest he's doing by casting out demons? And it's almost like he says, well, if you're, if you're determined to think of me as a criminal, then imagine me as a thief. I am a thief. I'm robbing a rich guy and I am binding up the strong man so I can make my plunder big. That's what casting demons is about. You've got to imagine that Jesus is doing a Jackie Chan on the perimeter fence of a rich man's house so that he can get each and every uh, bit of treasure inside. Now, uh, in that section that wasn't read out for us, uh, it comes between the troublesome customers and uh, and Jesus talking about what is his true family. There's a bit about the unforgivable sin. And I am told on good authority that if you have questions about the unforgivable sin, Pete Thompson is your man. So that first troublesome uh, party, that first troublesome customer that was introduced, Jesus' family, they are the second to arrive. And they are outside the overcrowded house and they call for him to come to them. So even on the surface, they're not behaving like the crowd. The crowd have flocked to Jesus. Now they are asking Jesus, no, you come out to us. And fresh from having insulted the, teacher, the teachers of the law by teaching them, he now insults his own family. It's a pretty shocking episode, so I want to actually read it as it is here in Mark 3, 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The people 
gathered around, eagerly listening to his words, not the family outside calling on him. Those eagerly listening to Jesus' words, flocking to Jesus, those are his real family, he says. So we're halfway through. We're about to get to the bit that was read out uh, for us earlier this morning. Where have we been so far? Seeing that drawing a crowd in and of itself isn't just plainly good. Jesus has a message for them and he wants them to hear it. He didn't just heal to heal more, exorcise to exorcise more. He healed and he exorcised and he sat with, he welcomed and he forgave so that many would listen to him. And it's those who truly, deeply listen to him who are called his family. Verse 35 again, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All right, so now we're uh, into the bit that was read out for us, the parable of the sower. Many of you will have recalled Sunday school lessons describing how farmers in Jesus' day did their sowing. Uh, You know, it's not like this. It's not with a machine. Uh, It's like this. And uh, you will have been frustrated like me, I'm sure, that rocks, rocky soil is easy to colour in and make cool and colourful patterns, but rocky soil is meant to be bad, so you can't make it look too pretty. The parable of the sower is possibly the most well-known of Jesus' parables. And I think it is that because we don't just get the parable, which is a bit mysterious, we get the explanation too. And uh, the disciples who were listening hard when it was first said and are mystified by it, they kind of launch into a special tutorial afterwards and listen carefully again. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? But Jesus uses that boat. In this this passage, it seems like uh, he was kind of forced to use the boat, but we know from the paragraph, the chapter before, uh, that this was his plan, get get a boat ready for this kind of thing. And... Uh, So you would imagine, I think, that uh, Jesus has got his floating stage and he's got his big crowd and this is his moment. This is his moment to shine. And so um, I'm not sure what outline Jesus could have used, bridge to life, two ways to live, four spiritual laws, how to get right with God, the best gospel presentation. This is Jesus' moment to give it. No? No? Jesus speaks in mysteries. Oh, they sound understandable. Most of the crowd could easily grasp the image he's presenting. It's all stuff they've experienced before. Farmers, seed, various kinds of soil. What unfortunate things happen in all but the best soil. But it's only when he's alone with his disciples that he untangles the mystery and explains it. So what is this crowd that longed for Jesus then? They finally found Jesus, finally listening to his precious words. What are they meant to do? There's just one little thing that Jesus says to them. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, if you have ears, use them, listen. I think for the disciples, this would have been really disturbing. What is Jesus doing with this key moment? he explains it to them he doesn't just explain the parables he explains why parables sometimes we're taught that 
parables are kind of put in this uh, earthly frame, things that we readily understand so that we'll never forget them, so that we'll easily understand something that will be otherwise really hard to understand about God. But unfortunately, Jesus confuses that as well, because he says in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, disciples, to you. But to those on the outside, the crowd, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What is Jesus doing with his key moment? The crowd gathered already? Seems like he is continuing in the mode of Isaiah. In much the same way that he's out on the boat, limiting the crowd's access to him, Jesus says that he's speaking so that those listening will largely not understand. And in Isaiah's day, them not understanding, having ears but not hearing, seeing but not perceiving, was going to prove that God's judgment against Israel was right. Yes, they really are that hard-hearted. Isaiah was going to preach good news, a way to be restored to God, and that Israel wouldn't listen would show how kind God was and how hard-hearted they were. Is Jesus really continuing that job even now? It's a different generation, but it seems like Jesus is continuing that same work, offering a saving message, but it's a message that divides the hard-hearted from the soft, a message that only those humble and confused enough to come and ask Jesus will be able to come and understand, thankfully. The disciples do ask. This is an odd thing. The disciples do lots of clumsy things, lots of silly things. It's great that they're recorded for us, but I love that this is recorded for us, that they do exactly what Jesus said. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so they come to him and they ask. And the explanation is one that tells the disciples not directly what the parable means or what to go out and do therefore but it explains to the disciples who is this crowd who are they what is this moment right now the disciples in many places some of the clumsy things they do clumsiest things they do is because they're eager for jesus to seize his moment why because they too will become famous and influential because they'll be by his side and with the gathering of a crowd from such a wide area, such a variety of people, so many that Jesus needs a floating pulpit, surely now Jesus' moment has come. Surely it's harvest time. But Jesus is describing to them a different view of what is happening right now. Yes, a farmer is here, but he is not harvesting. This farmer is sowing. He's speaking the truth. There's no shortage of seed, certainly no shortage of ground. The numbers are impressive. But what does it mean that a massive crowd has gathered? It's time to go out and sow. And so the word goes out. And the crowd appear to receive it. Job done. Oh, but not so fast. It's not all as it appears to be. Some are going to hear and forget as soon as they're on their way home. You told me there was going to be at least three exorcisms today. I didn't see anything. They weren't really interested in the teaching in the first place. Satan steals the word from them. 
What about the super keen? Surely they'll become disciples 2.0. But they have no depth when they're laughed at for listening to Jesus. They take those stories home and it doesn't get a good reception. They're given trouble for listening to Jesus and they give up. They have no depth. Some of the keen ones, they might last longer still. They have depth even, but eventually other concerns slowly take over and choke their faith. So who's left then? Those who hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Maybe the disciples would be thinking that there's no one left. Only one of four soils, but that small number who do listen to Jesus' words are massively fruitful, just like seed sown on good soil. Why do the disciples need to know this? Why a secret kept from the crowd that is explained to the disciples? Well, they've just been made teachers for Jesus. They've just been made exorcists for Jesus. And they need to understand that whether they draw a crowd or not, that amongst those who listen are a variety of people. But don't believe the hype. Don't just read the numbers, but understand there are numbers hiding. There are numbers hiding. There may be a small number that hear and accept, but they will be massively fruitful. So for the crowd, this is a confusing, dividing word that's describing the very people who are listening, and some won't get it. Some appear to get it, but only a few really grasp and then chase that truth and ask Jesus what it means. For the disciples, they're meant to pause. Yes, this looks like harvest. This looks like Jesus hitting his stride, time to capitalize. But Jesus says it's time to finish Isaiah's work, preach that good news, and let the result show who has hardened themselves to God and who really wants to hang on to every word of Jesus. So that's for the, for the crowd, uh, for the disciples. What about for us? What's it meant for us? How should you do your Sunday school class about parables for youth group, for home church, for home group, for, uh, for church gatherings? Well, it's a bit sobering reading the rest of this passage beyond verse 20, a bit sobering, but maybe a bit exciting too, because there are more parables here and those parables got explained, but not to us. We become the crowd. There are parables there. We hear the disciples have a special tutorial. We don't get to hear the content of the tutorial. So for us, it might be just as mysterious as the parable of the sowers. What are we meant to do? Well, the writer didn't do this by accident. If If the writer knew about the background to the parable of the sower, then they probably had access to the explanation that the disciples had for these other three parables too, right? So I then think that for us as readers, there's an expected reaction. Uh, will we be hard? We'll be like, yeah, 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 I get it. Or will we really lean in and go and ask Jesus and plead with God to show us uh, what this means? Um, well, here are a few notes coming from me pleading with God. Please help me to understand this stuff about the lamb and the hidden but growing seed and then the mustard seed to finish off. First, there's a lamp that would be ridiculous to hide. I think Jesus is signaling that something different is happening from Isaiah's age. Instead of the prophet preaching until there's nothing left but a stump in the ground and God's judgment is proved right, 
Jesus' teaching is actually a light that's meant to be put on a pedestal. The, the age of God's message being uh, hidden on purpose is over. This light is for shining. And second, there's a parable of, a, of the, the hidden but growing seed. In the parable of the sower, I think Jesus is highlighting today is not harvest day. It looks like it. It looks like I'm hitting my stride. It looks like it's my moment. It's not. It is the day of sowing. But there's another parable, and it is about harvest. Today is not the harvest, but the harvest will come. You know, the seed that went out on that day is still growing today in distant places like Japan and Australia. The disciples may well have been frustrated with Jesus, who was frustrating the crowd and wasting his big chance. But no, the big chance is still to come. That harvest is still to come. Wait for it. And finally, the mustard seed. What's going to happen with this kind of day? Big crowd, various responses. You see, if you zoom out a little bit from this crowd, because we've kind of suggested that not all crowds are good, zoom out a little bit, you'll remember that on another day, not too far from this day, another big crowd will gather and celebrate that this teacher, Jesus, has come to claim his kingdom and they'll loudly welcome him into Jerusalem. And not too many days after that, perhaps a different crowd, perhaps an overlapping number, will call for Jesus' execution. Crowds by themselves aren't simply good. Jesus knows not to entrust himself to them. He knows his seed is being sown on a variety of soils and he knows what's ahead that the crowds will get louder but smaller until everyone has abandoned him apart from some fearless and faithful women. In the light of that future, he can clearly see. It's good to know the potential, right, of one little seed, a mustard seed. So insignificant, small, apparently dead, but it will grow into a significant, large, living and vibrant tree. And isn't that what we see once Jesus has died, risen again, ascended and poured out his spirit? And we're promised a crowd no one can count will gather around him, given life by him, longing for him and being satisfied by him. Well, we've traveled through a long and confusing passage. I really wanted to change the title of this, you know, it was Jesus, the teacher, and I really thought it should be called Jesus, the confounder. He does so much confusing, so much insulting in this passage. But as he teaches, are you insulted by him? Taken aback by his words? Confused by him? If you are, you can take comfort that you're actually in good company. In Jesus' presence, smart people can be made to feel dumb. People close to Jesus can feel left out. And those who made an effort to come can feel, feel confused. What will you do? Will you stay? Will you ask him? Will you come on a rainy day? Lean in. Ask him to explain. Plead with Jesus. Make your message clear to me. And that, in this passage, that's what true family does. That's what a true disciple does. That's what good soil does. You see, the person in most danger is the one who says, yep, yeah, I uh, got it. Pretty much heard this all before. But the person in the sweet spot 
might be perplexed by Jesus and his words. That's a healthy sign. But don't stop there at perplexed, confused or insulted. Lean in. Ask him to help you understand. Well, I wonder what opportunities you have at church uh, to lean in. Do you need to come to church sprightlier and more awake? Perhaps uh, an earlier finish time to Saturday partying? Uh, speaking as a hypocrite, I, I say that. Uh, do you need the challenge of trying to teach God's word to others, maybe? Could you join with other people who are at a similar life stage to you, who meet up in homes and grapple with God's word and support one another in prayer? And maybe like me, you've made excuses for years that you, why you don't read the Bible every day. Well, what worked for me recently uh, was joining a simple text chat group that just says, yep, read it each day. Just a fantastic and simple way to form a new habit of leaning into God's word. I want to pause for a bit of an aside right at the end, because even with good habits in God's word and the best uh, home group and taking opportunities to teach Sunday school and all those things, um, if you're like me, you might find at times that you've been filling your brains uh, with other stuff. So there's just not much room for the life-giving words of the Bible. Now, there's a line that I heard some 25-year-olds sharing, uh, kind of gamer dudes. Uh, they, they said, everything my parents warned would happen to me by playing violent video games actually happened to them by being on Facebook. I felt a bit stung by that. That is to say, parents worried that their kids' values were going to become hardened by games actually found themselves being warped by the social media they were consuming. That's not to say that social media itself is bad. My social media of choice is Twitter rather than Facebook, but the amount of time that I spend consuming polarised opinions about everything, I find really just chokes out God's way of thinking for me. And I'm compulsively reading because I sense there's big problems with the world. And I find myself longing for one of the people I follow to say something, to do something that will fix it. I find myself leaning in to just the wrong words, putting my trust in the wrong people. Those words, they promise a lot, but in the end do little. And isn't words that promise a lot, but in the end do little, isn't that the very opposite of a mustard seed? Jesus' words on that day, confusing, but in our day, bearing a massive, uncountable harvest. So let's lean into God's word, trim away the things that are distracting us, plead with God to make his words clear to us, to grow us by his word and to make us fruitful. Let's take a moment to ask uh, him for that now. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for this opportunity to share in your word this morning. Uh, there are some confusing things that Jesus said, but no less important. And we pray that you'll give us that determination, that good soil, that true family, that true disciple that asks you, that leans in, that focuses in on your word and struggles with it. And Lord, our struggle is useless uh, unless you by your spirit are teaching us. Please, we pray that you would do that even today, even through these words from far away. And we thank you for the chance to um, not just listen to one person speak, 
but that we have the chance to fellowship with our brothers and sisters afterwards. And we pray that our conversation will be rich in your word. Um, please grow us by your word. Please let us um, be that good soil. Let us have ears that hear and listen hard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.